Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to These Go to 11. Once again, I'm Nathan Bell. Steve Hartland sitting across from me. Steve, what's going on, man? Uh, nothing much. It's summertime. It's quiet. I'm not at the beach. I'm not on vacation. When I go to church on Sunday, it's obvious a whole lot of people are at the beach. What's going on? Everybody's coming back a little darker, right? They or are. At There's least a little more red. wrong with this picture. <laughs> oh, man. Well, we are, um, we are picking right up. This is a part two. So, you know, really we're not going to be, you know, doing any kind of riffing or anything like that starting off. We're just, we're going to dive right in because this is part two of our, um, of our top 10 look out on uh, on books and as we said last week there isn't really any uh, particular order that we have these books in in terms of our number one two three etc these are just 10 books that we really feel um, are great books people should go out there and experience these and read these I think last week Steve you actually ended up saying that the first one probably did fit into your top category if not the you know your top first book that you enjoyed um but we're just kind of going through these and um, hopefully going to springboard a new section on this podcast on uh, some of our books. So, you know, our kind of beginning segment would be just, you know, books that we recommend for the week. So weekly, weekly recommended books by TGT 11. So um, looking forward to, to starting that up um, in the next few weeks to come here. So um, Steve, uh, why don't you go ahead and start us off with your, uh, number. This would be your number six book. I would be happy to do that. It's going to be a few books by the same author. Nice. All right. Let's so, hear it. So last week, most of my books were uh, on a Christian theme, one way or another, all yep. except Cicero. Were uh, so I'm going to start off with non-Christian mm. uh, fiction tonight. And one of my favorite writers of fiction is Cormac McCarthy. So he wrote, uh, this will turn into a movie, No Country for Old Men. Ah, uh, yes. Great book. The book is, uh, as they always are, way better than the movie. Sure. The movie's amazing. The book is incredibly amazing. He also wrote some of his best-known other books are The Road. Mm-hmm. The, the Road is, let me talk about that one for a moment. So have you seen the Denzel Washington movie where it's about the book, and he's uh, it's post-apocalyptic genre. He's walking across the nation carrying a book. Yeah, the book of Eli, right? Yes, that's yes. the book of Eli. So. Yeah. And it turns out to be, well, I shouldn't say. Somebody, <laughs> somebody hasn't seen the movie yet. Anyway, I think they might have gotten their idea from this book by Cormac McCarthy, The Road. Mm. It is post-apocalyptic, only it's a father and a son traveling their way to the West Coast and to safety. And they eventually arrive there, but there are many things they run into on the way. Right. And that's what that book is about. I don't know why. I love this post-apocalyptic stuff. Do you? I do, yeah. I enjoy a lot of that as well. Um, one of my favorite ones, uh, this is not book, but movie, um, that uh, many of our listeners may or may not appreciate. One of Greg and my favorite movie, actually, Zombieland. Have you seen, seen that it. one? Nope. Oh my I thought God. you were going to say Mad Max. No, but I, I, I like do love. Yeah, I do love that <laughs> series. Too. Yes, uh-huh. yes, but no, Zombieland because it has a lighter tone to it. So it's post-apocalyptic zombie, uh, you know, zombie fiction. Uh, but Woody Harrelson's in it, and so Woody Harrelson as a zombie killer is just absolutely hysterical. He's awesome, huh? All right, so. Um, McCarthy also writes uh, the the one that I mentioned, and, t- and it turned into a movie, No Country for Old Men. Yeah. Uh, the movie stars uh, Tommy Lee mm-hmm. as a Texas old coot cop. Yeah. 
who uh, at the end of the movie and in the end of the book, he and a relative of his are sitting in this run-down little shacky trailer out in nowhere somewhere with cats going all around and stuff, and they're, uh, they're musing about life. There are a number of scenes where somebody's musing about life. Those kind of scenes always turn me on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I really love those parts, but uh, the whole story is fantastic. As well as uh, Blood Meridian, also one of his real mm-hmm. uh, famous books. So maybe I'll leave Cormac McCarthy at that. But if you're looking for some good summer reading, uh, most of his books are big. They'll take you a while to get through. But Cormac McCarthy is really, he's the real deal. He's legit. Excellent. Well, that's what summers are for, right? Those are it's for the you know the big books. You get that week or two week vacation that you plow through. That's it, right. Sit up late at night. Absolutely, no bedtime involved. So get to reading. Um, I'm going to recommend for my first section uh, nonfiction, the Lord of the Rings books. Um, and again, with like with the Harry Potter books, you can be as constrained as you want with them or you can be as explosive as you want and get into as much of the world as you want with these books. There are so many of them. His son, Christopher Tolkien, has taken over um, the writing of these books and so he's he's continuously producing more books through the lineages and all of that stuff. The four core books you're going to want to read are going to be The Hobbit and then The Lord of the Rings. Technically, in the original format, The Lord of the Rings was only one book that was divided into three later. And so the three books that we know, The Fellowship of the Ring, The Two Towers, and then The Return of the King, are those four books in and of themselves are what you need for that more complete story. And then there's a lot of appendices that come from that in history and things like that that you can get into if you want. Um, but those are those are the ones that I would recommend. The The Hobbit is definitely more of that children's type story. Um, he intentionally wrote it as a children's story. And then you start getting into the fellowship and you get more of the, the rich fullness of the history and the society that he was creating. He intentionally creates a society predating religion. Um, so that there is no mark of of Christianity or Islam or Buddhism or anything in there. However, uh, being a Christian, there are still these real heavy symbols of good and evil. You're going to see Christ-like figures appearing through there. You're going to see people making... um, There are no gray decisions in this Series People are either making good decisions or bad decisions. And even the good people making bad decisions, there are consequences shown for, for those actions. They're not just left freely to make the decision for the good of, you know, for the, for the, for the uh, greater good, so to speak. There is – Tolkien understands that there is a cost. There's a penalty that's made for even a good person making a bad decision for good reasons. And you can't escape those consequences. It doesn't have the the stereotypical happy ending. There is somewhat of a happy ending to the series, but um, Tolkien does a great job at showing uh, the weight of sin and how the weight of sin leaves scars on people, even on innocence. And you can't you can't get around that. You can't get through that. Um, it just it has such a weight. 
And so um, just just a masterful series that's been um, done. So much, again, richness and history into this world that he wrote, this mythos that he wrote um, about uh, about this life. And then if you want to get more into the history of everything, the Silmarillion is the book, but it reads very much like a history book. Don't yeah, expect to go one. into that. Yeah. Don't expect to go into that reading a, uh, reading a piece of uh, fiction. It, is, it very much reads like history and like you were reading a history on Western civilization or something like that. But it's a history he made up in his little brain. That's his right. Big brain. That's right. And I, I love reading. Um, I, <clears throat> I've read the first, I would say um, 10 chapters of that book. Uh, several times over again. I, I get through a little bit more of it each time um, because I, I can't sit down and read it in one sitting. I have to read to a certain point and then stop and kind of process it because there are so many people and so much information that's going on and thousands of years of history going on in this book. Um, but I just, I love the creation story in that book mm. and I love his imagination. Many people, um, you know, try to look to him as, uh, you know, someone with insight into creation or into God or things like that. I, I wouldn't go that far. I think he was writing a mythology and he says as much. And I think there are influences in there, but it's not, it's not an allegory. It's not a, you know, one for one comparison on the God of the Bible and the God that he has created in his book. The God that he creates in his book has limitations, can't see all ends, so to speak, or see the the darkness in the hearts of all of his creation and says as much in the book. And so, you know, I think you need to take it for what it is. It's it's a myth. And if you can read it as a myth, it becomes enjoyable and fun. And it's the... Uh it's the battle between good and evil, the forces yes. of good and evil, on a grand, grand scale, mm-hmm. uh, which is really amazing stuff. We used to read it to our kids at bedtime. Uh, we read through the whole series with our kids at bedtime, and right before bed, we would terrify them. Nice. You know, like the ring wraiths would show up. Yes. And, and we'd, we'd... Pause right there. Yeah, we'd make these horrible screams that That's they made. Right. And our kids would be terrified. And then we'd say, good night. Uh, so it was, it was great. Yeah. Um... I, I don't know. Do you have a favorite character? Uh, I like a lot of the characters, but to me, Schmeagel, who became Gollum, mm-hmm. is really interesting as a case study in depravity. Yeah. Right? He just gets worse and worse, and he winds up being this miserable little creature that lives down in the dark holes in the earth, and he's consumed with this one thing that yes. he wants to have, this ring. Uh, kind of a picture of somebody left to themselves and where you wind up. That's that is uh, very interesting, and I always um, I think the movies actually do a good job at portraying more sympathy for Smeagol than than the books. I don't think he um, and and this I think is Tolkien's intent. I don't I don't think he's a very sympathetic character in the books. In the books, he's very evil and crafty, even when he's pretending to be good. Ultimately, the reason he's good is to try to get the ring back and. Um, everyone knows that where the movies portray him a little more sympathetically where he kind of becomes good for a little bit, but then he's betrayed and he becomes bad again. Um, you don't have that struggle in the books. And so I, I think you're right. That is very interesting. I always just love the character of Aragorn or LSR mm. just because to me it's, he has the whole weight of his past on his shoulders. It was his, um, it was his ancestor 
who didn't destroy the ring. And so he knows he has this burden upon him to, to make sure that this thing gets destroyed. You know, that, that guilty by association uh, thing is weighing on him. Um, but I love, you know, I love the righteous man that he is, you know, the, the uncompromising. You don't see the making bad decisions coming from him. You know, he's, he's making the decisions that need to be made. Um, he's looking at each scenario, strategizing what needs to be done. And so I, I've just, I've always loved his character and who he is. Now, interestingly though, when you go beyond him after he dies, his sons are horrible little people. Um, Mm. you know, like you have this peaceful time where he reigns almost like King David, but then after that, it just all goes to pot. The next generation. Exactly. Exactly. But I just, I love his story and like, you know, the last great man, uh, you know, from the men of Numenor and, um, everything that, that he represents in that storyline. And, you know, he is kind of one of the ones that is lifted up as a Christ figure. Um, and so it's just, to me, I, I just, I always love that struggle. And, but even with the struggle, he's always going to do the right thing. You can always count on him. Cool. So, yep. So, Steve, next. All right, my next book. I'm going to stay in uh, fiction for another book here. One book by this author. The book is titled The Cartel. Ooh, that sounds good. Don Winslow. I read this book just last year. All these others that we're talking about, I've read years ago and then reread and reread. But The Cartel, I read just last summer in a paperback form. And. the author uh, himself was not a, an American agent dealing with cartels, but uh, he has been very much involved somehow or other with, with cartels and their dealings, so he's really knowledgeable. And what he writes is a, a history, a, a story that's pretty much a true story, though all the names and dates and places are fictitious. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's writing about Mexican and Latin American and South American drug cartels, and our DEA agents and, and battles against oh, wow. them and what goes on. And uh, it, it's striking. Why do I always like such depraved people and stories about them? It's striking, uh, these cartels. First, the power yes. they have, like in Mexico. Yes. Most of Mexico is bought and paid for. Yes. Um, you know, Government officials from yep. high up, big sections of the army, police forces, bought and paid for. Like, you go to a city, the entire police force is bought and paid for by the cartel. Um, whole towns, they'll even repopulate. They'll chase all the citizens out of a town and then repopulate it with who they want so it can be a really drug-moving, drug-producing town. Wow. Um, but their power in the nation, they own... You, you like Mexican destination vacations? Probably owned by the cartel. That they own most of those def- destinations. Well, there's no other. There's no other reason for why they're as good as yes. they are. I Who mean, has that kind of cash? Yeah. And these people have unbelievable cash. Yes. And uh, so many people on their payroll. Um, but one of the most striking things in the whole book, I shouldn't even talk about, but I will. Nice. It, it's how they torture each other, how they torture their enemies. Uh, so, you know, there are various cartels, and they're always battling between right. each other. They're always wiping each other out, killing right. each other. And the way they do it, oh, man, there's so many ways. Like, this is gory. Are you ready? 
I'm, I'm giving you an alert Let's here. do it. It's going right. to be a little bit gory. Spoiler alert. So, Parents, so they, move your kids out if so, you don't yeah. want them to hear it. So let's say they have two guys from the, the other bad guy cartel. Sure. And this cartel has captured two of those guys. And they've got them uh, roped down to two chairs. They're each sitting in a chair and they're roped down. So they get out and, and they want information from them. But the guys you know, won't give them information. They're sure. not going to snitch or whatever. So they get out a chainsaw and they start hacking the guy in one chair to pieces and eventually cut off his head while the other guy's watching. The other guy loses control of his bowels and everything while he's watching, literally. you know, right. There's a big puddle down by his feet, and he's shaking and he's terrified. And they turn to him and hold a chainsaw in front of him and say, now will you give us the information? And he does, man. Right. Does. And then they kill him anyway. Right. Yeah, they yeah, torture him. Anyway. Yeah. But the ways they torture. You want to hear some others, or is that bad eh. for this podcast? No, nah, it's Oh, it's fine, man. Like one of the favorites of this of a major cartel in Mexico is they just throw you in a barrel. You're alive. They throw you in a 55 gallon barrel, pour a lot of gasoline in it, and light it. <sighs> Goodbye. Yeah, instant incineration. They, right they there. like fire. They use a lot of fire. Like one, I'll give one more example. This one's terrible. So they fasten you to a chair, and they light you on fire. They pour gasoline on you, light right. you on fire. Then you use a fire extinguisher and put it out. Oh, then they pour gasoline again. again, and they do it over and over and over and over. Oh, oh they're just horrible. And and they, you know, these people just do this. They don't bat an eye. Right. There doesn't seem to be any conscience, no remorse. Uh, they they delight in that they're yeah. such bad people. So uh, nice beach reading for you, the right, cartel. Right. Well, you know, eye opener about Mexico. You know what's fascinating though is when we talk about. Why is it that we that we are to respect the government that God has placed over us? <laughs> this is what society looks like without a without, government. Yes, without government, this is what it looks like. Yeah. You know, and so you have just a complete disregard for morality. You have a complete disregard for human life, and so these things now become such an option that is available. Um, you know, to, to just wreak havoc, you know, and you have, you have things like that happening in the Roman government too, of course, you know, we read stories of people being lit on fire, thrown in the Colosseums and things like that. But in that case, it was a very specific instance of persecution happening to a very specific group of people. Mm -hmm. These aren't things that happen to people all over the place at any given time. Yes. You know, and so, you know, you can really, when you read things like that and you understand the depravity that is in man's heart, you understand what Paul says when he's like, uh, you need to respect the government because this is why God has placed the government in your life. Yeah. yeah having read this, I don't want to go to Mexico unless it was to one of their uh, uh, vacation destinations. Yeah. Because the cartel makes sure that that place stays crime free. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. They want the because money. they want the, the money. Because yeah. they want the money. Yeah. They want the money. So I'll go to one of those, but I don't just want to go to Mexico because who knows oh, yeah. what can happen to you down there. Yeah. Uh, and man, are, are you having issues with American America and our politics right. and all that? I understand, but try Mexico. Right. Yeah, it's incredible. Try Latin American countries, I know. South American countries. Man, I know. it's amazing. I always, you know, it's it's one of the blessings and the curses of freedoms that we have to complain against our government is that we have that freedom. But at the same time, I feel like when when somebody complains too much, I, I think they need to be sent to another country to live for a period yeah, for of time, a while. just so it. they can understand and appreciate what we have. Yes. But, um, 
Also, is what is staggering in the book is to realize how much, how many tons of cocaine are coming mm. into our country yeah. all the time. Yeah. Cocaine, like who's buying? I don't know anybody using cocaine. Yeah, who's buying all this cocaine? Yeah, wow. And then how they transport it around the U.S. as well. There's yeah. stuff about that. Just amazing. Who? That's crazy. So what was the name of that one again? Was it? It was uh, just just um, simply the cartel, the cartel by Don Winslow. And you know, warning. Uh, lots of people are breaking lots of commandments in the book, so it's, you know it's not a holy right. book, all right? Just right. Warning. Very cool. Very cool. So next on my list, I'm actually going to jump a little bit of a different um, direction into um, a book that actually got me. Um, I would say it was the final nail in the coffin of me seeing Reformed theology um, as true. Um, and that is Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul. Um, I haven't read that. Really good one. I had been – so my journey when I taught Bible, um, I was uh, still more along the lines of free will. I'd, I'd, I think at that point resolved myself to stop asking questions. And I was just kind of like, well, you know what? The Bible talks about free will. It talks about predestination. And I'm just going to let God figure it out. I know that I'm saved and I'm just going to leave it there. And never really explored it further. But then when I started teaching Bible, I had to start talking about these ideas and these concepts of free will and predestination. And much to my chagrin, I had no one in my classroom willing to talk about predestination. I thought, Mm. surely in a classroom of, you know, between anywhere from 17 to 20 some students, someone in here will, you know, defend it and argue it. And nope, every single one of them was, nope, free man's free will, man's free will. I chose Jesus. I just, so I felt like, well, as a good teacher, I need to present the other side of this, this argument. So I, did what any good teacher would do and set out to bury my students in their argument. (laughs) And so I started doing my research and I started doing the background and I started just getting up and and arguing passionately for this idea of predestination and God's sovereignty in our lives and ended up more or less convincing myself of it and realizing that, wow, this is actually, you know, this has some teeth. This is what the Bible talks about. And um, the thing that really convinced me was um, Greg actually gave me this book, um, Chosen by God, to read. And, um, you know, he just handed it and said, you know, check this out, see what you think of it, and get back to me. And so I did. I grabbed the book and read all the way through it. And R.C. Sproul, I believe, did a very good job at redefining the word tulip, making it understandable for someone in. Uh, our generation to look at and read and see what each of those points mean and represent and why TULIP was actually, you know, it sounds cute, but it actually doesn't quite fit the concept of of what these terms mean and represent. So he came up with his own acronym that had no real meaning or symbol to it, but, you know, it fit more closely and accurately to the idea of God's sovereignty and predestination and salvation. Um, and so, like I said, that was kind of the final nail that, you know, really, um, I was like, you know what? Yeah, this is, this is what I believe. This is what I see scripture saying with this idea of, uh, predestination, God's sovereignty in our lives and salvation. How long ago did you read that? Let's see. So 
It's a good question. Uh, six years, seven years ago, maybe seven years ago, seven or eight. Yeah, seven or eight years ago. All right. So, wow. Yep. Yep. So, and like I said before that, I would. I mean, I remember in high school arguing with uh, fellow students and even pastors. You know, the idea of predestination and free will, and uh, you know, being able to you know, stump them up and adequately, you know, hold my own in this, in this argument. And then I get to a group of students who, who aren't taking the other side because I wanted them to see, you know what, there are brothers and sisters in Christ who believe this. And I take up the cause and defend it and end up convincing myself of it. So, um, I always, you know, I always tell people if you ever, if you ever don't agree with a brother on something, take up their side of the argument and see what they have to say. And you know, try to defend it with as much passion as you would defend your side. And and I I've done this, believe me, I've done this hundreds of times. And I don't always come away agreeing with them, but I do come away with a little bit more respect and appreciation for for what they say. I've do, done that same thing a lot, and with a little bit of a different twist mm-hmm. on it. And that is, I see if can I convince myself, yeah, of their view. I'm going to absolutely open my mind to it. Yeah. Can I convince myself that their view is true? And I'm going to try to and try yeah. to believe it. See, can I make myself believe this? Yeah. And maybe I can, and maybe I can't. Yeah. But like you said, at least I realize there are reasons why they right. they have hold that view, and I can see coming from where they came from, how they arrived there, yes. and you can respect them. Yes. And I think that's the biggest thing that we miss sometimes is is the respect for the other side. Yes. You know, we we lose that, and it doesn't matter whether it's. We throw um, rocks. Th- yes, exactly. It doesn't matter whether it's theology or politically. Uh, we don't take the time to sit there and realize these are people who think through things just as yeah. we do. They've drawn different conclusions. Sometimes, um, you know, like in the case of abortion, the reason why they may have drawn a different conclusion is because they're coming from a different worldview. Yep. But I also need to understand and appreciate that if I truly believe in God's sovereignty – that person's eyes have not yet been opened and God has chosen not to open their eyes. Mm-hmm. So how mad can I be at them for something God has not allowed to happen yet? Yep. Same thing with you just having an argument with somebody else. Um, you know, Try and imagine yourself coming from where they come from yeah. and uh, experiencing what they've experienced and think, you know what, I could, I could be arguing like them right now if I'd been there. Yep. Helps yep. you appreciate them. Absolutely. Next book. Well, this is by my main man, John Frame. Oh, nice. I had to get some John Frame in here. I've got a couple of John Frames here. Excellent. But this one is more obscure, not so well-known. I'm not even sure whether you can find copies, probably used copies only, even though Baker published it initially. Uh, it, the title is Evangelical Reunion, and the subtitle is Denominations and the Body of Christ. Oh, I remember him talking about this one when we had him on for our interview. Yes, yes. In fact, I might have brought it up. I don't know. Okay. I, I just like this book yeah. so much. So I first came across this when I was a uh, dyed-in-the-wool Reformed Baptist pastor, and we, we were we were very insular and somewhat spiritual elitist. Uh, we, we felt like, you know, we've got church figured out correctly. <laughs> All these other forms of Christianity are something lesser. There's a lot of apostasy out there, though we've never been out there to visit it, but we just assumed a lot right. of apostasy out there. And we really had nothing to do with anybody who wasn't pretty much just like us. Um, Frame is arguing against that. Mm. He really rocked me with this book, and he really convinced me with this book that that, that is sick. 
Mm. That that is not healthy Christianity. Mm. That it is narrow, sectarian, and not pleasing to Christ who prayed that we, all believers, would be one. Mm. So in this book, uh, he argues, um, he's fine with denominations, but he argues that we need more cross-pollinization between denominations and more appreciation for each other. Like he says on page uh, 60, uh, so much of our denominational life is structured according to us against them. Mm. Uh, you know, this kind of Presbyterian against that other kind of Presbyterian, uh, a dispensationalist against a covenant theologian, and so on, uh, an Anabaptist against a Paedobaptist. Uh, even our kind of Baptist versus their kind of Baptist. Uh, you know, yes. you're, just, you're a Baptist, you're just not the right kind of a Baptist. And he says some of this may be a legitimate attempt to distinguish what one believes to be true doctrine uh, from its counterfeits, but it can mislead believers into thinking that their main warfare is with other Christians. Mm. I'm afraid, I think a lot of believers, a lot of pastors, a lot of the, the, the tilt of a lot of churches, the attitude of a lot of churches is, uh, the the main enemy is those other Christians who mm. aren't right. So uh, this 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 book woke me up a lot. He says a Christian's home team, family, and spiritual home should be nothing less than the one true church. We should get re- used to rooting more for the church mm. and less for a particular denomination. Good stuff, Mr. Frame. I, I needed that, and he's changed me in that way. You know what I love, too, is this is coming uh, – I love yeah. the humility of John Frame. Yeah. This is coming Don't from you? a guy who is – who I think would agree is more of a strict Sabbatarian. Absolutely. Who Mr. is – Mr. Reform. Yeah. You know, this is and, – and he's saying, you know what? Get out there. See the way other people do things and experience the way other people do things. It's good. It's healthy. Yeah. Um, he does say, also, that this got me thinking, if, if two churches, so here's a church on this corner, here's a mm-hmm. church in that corner, and if they are not outward facing, they can be threats to one another. Like, mm. you're going to get those other Christians. No, we want to get right. those other Christians. Right. We want them to come to our church. You want them to come to your church. But if you're outward you're not threats. Yeah. There's plenty of people. That's out there. right. The harvest is plentiful. That's the labors right. are few. So uh, that changed my view a whole lot of other yeah. churches. Like, hey, we're, we're a band of brothers here. Yes. Uh, we're persecuted. We're struggling. We're weak. We're not doing a very good job. We need each yes. other. We need to appreciate each other. That, that was good stuff. And then he gives what he calls a personal evangelism or evangelical perspective. Um, he says, uh, let me paraphrase a lot of this. Uh, he's asked sometimes, you know, would you recommend this church or that church? So he imagines two churches and which one he would recommend somebody go to. And he says, on the one hand, uh, there is uh, a church that is not reformed, but there's lots of life. You go in and there's you know the life of Christ mm-hmm. in people. There's the power of the Spirit of God present in their worship. Uh, there's just faithful scriptural preaching. The gospel's preached. Jesus Christ is lifted up. When they sing, man, it seems like the people love Jesus and they sing. And there's just good life going on in that church. But they're not reformed. Mm-hmm. Then there's another church that is reformed. Um, and the reformed pastor's theology is closer to Mr. Frames than this other church. This other church, by the way, they were dispensationalists as mm-hmm. well. 
Um, but the Reformed man's sermons are exceedingly obscure and highly negative. Mm. Lots of denunciatory preaching. And the people of his congregation, they become like their pastor, you know, mm -hmm. they seem always to have chips on their shoulders, indignant about this or that in the church. There's very little joy in the Lord, very little welcome of, to people of non-Reformed background. They claim to have much knowledge, but most of it is poorly thought out. He says, I would not hesitate to recommend the dispensationalist church. Mm, good for him. Wow, I bet he took a lot of flack for that oh, I uh, know. from the you know the, oh, the TRs, yeah. the thoroughly reformed people. Yeah. Uh, he says, it is clear to me that the dispensationalist, in my example, conveys far more of the far more of the truth than the reformed church and pastor. Mm. Because the truth isn't just do you have the reformed theology ironed out? The truth is is there love, is there faith, yes. hope and love in abundance. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I to me, when you go inside, when you go into a church and you look around and you ask the question, "Is this a family? Is this a group of people who love and care about one another?" You know, churches who who say, you know, we accept everyone up until the point of even saying, you know, yeah, we'll have uh, a lesbian or gay pastor stand up in front of you, and and when I you know say that, I mean a participating, a practicing. Um, because we've you know had Sam Alberry on here before, who would identify as having same sex attractions, but is not um, you know participating in that, and so I, you know there is a difference yes. in that. But the the ones who who are loving are the ones who are like family, where you can say, uh, "I love you, but you're wrong." You know, mm -hmm. and when you have that in a church, when you have people who genuinely love you and care about you, and you genuinely see that love and care, that's the church that you want to get excited about because you know that's where God's word's being preached. Yeah. You know, like we talked Absolutely. about, um, uh, you know, a little while ago with Greg on church discipline. You know, the purpose of church discipline is to show love, that we care about you. We care so much about you. We want, we want to make sure that you understand what you're doing is wrong. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and so that's a healthy church. That's a good church, you know. And if you have a reformed church that you know, in word and deed, all the right things are there, whether it's the Westminster Confession or the London Baptist Confession or whatever it is, but you're missing some key things. You're missing that element of love. You're missing yeah. that element of joy within within the body of Christ. Reformed or not, you're douchebag. Yes. Now, fortunately, you know, we both know there are Reformed churches that have love. Yes, have absolutely. Have lots of the, of the absolutely. Spirit of and uh, there are non-reformed churches that don't. Yes. So uh, yes. there's no one formula and no. one size fits all. No. But um, you know, back in my day as a reformed Baptist pastor, you know, only the reformed churches were good churches. Yeah. No longer do I feel that yeah. way. Yeah. Well, and I'll even say when when somebody asks my opinion about churches, I am more than free to give give opinions about churches. I've given more than my fair share on this podcast. I've given more than my fair share out in public. Um, one of the main ones that I'm constantly being asked about is Stephen Furtick's Church Elevation. Are you asked a lot about that? I am. And, and I t uh, I'll tell I've people um, this, that I think if, you, if uh, you're not a believer, if you, you go to that church, go. Great place. Because you're going to hear, you're going to hear Christ. If you're a new believer, I think you need to be careful. I think there's things in, in the theology that you need to be careful of. Um, and if you are a veteran, maybe you should find another church to go to. Hmm. 
Um, and that's and that's what I'll tell people, and unashamedly so. Yeah, I, I believe he's a Christian. I know people who know him, mm-hmm. very yeah, good friends really. with him, yes. Yeah. And so I can, to a certain extent, speak to the heart of of who the man is based on that. And so I have no problem saying saying that. But I also have no problem saying, yeah, there are flaws that for a mature Christian, you need to watch out and you should probably go somewhere else to get – to get fed more on a Sunday morning. Yeah, you'd certainly get fed more. You know, and, and but I have no problem making distinctions like that and hanging in that balance. Yeah, and my take on other pastors and other churches, let's say Furtick, for example, uh, I would like to know, and I don't know, uh, what would his personal doctrinal statement be on the fundamentals of the faith, fundamental mm-hmm. core doctrines? And if he is sound on the fundamental core doctrines and he, you know, he affirms them mm-hmm. and doesn't seem to equivocate... Um, I'd be really happy with him, even though his preaching is a little too much like T.D. Jakes and mm-hmm. you know whatever and whatever. Uh, when a man holds to the right doctrines, the core doctrines of the Christian faith, I'm receiving him. Mm-hmm. I'm receiving him. I could go there, mm-hmm. even though there's some other weird stuff going on. I don't happen to know what he holds to, personally, right? So I'm not saying I recommend. Right. Him. See, and I've I've come to a point. Um, not to get off on an elevation tangent here, but I've just I've come to a point. I've heard him actually beginning to preach health and wealth in yes. his sermons. I wouldn't be surprised. And so for me, it's just to me that's a red flag because it it's. I remember a time where Joel Olstein preached Christ crucified hmm. and started moving yeah, away from happened, that right? exactly. And so that's where that's where I would say you know here's the caution. You know, if you are a new Christian, I still believe Christ is being preached there, um, and so get into it. But if you are if you are developing, there are some things you need to be you need to be aware of, right. and and you know you need to be questioning and you need to be in Scripture, discerning what is right and what isn't. Mm-hmm. And then as a mature Christian, I just could not. And again, this is personal preference. I put this all on me. I could not see myself as a more mature Christian sitting under his teaching. Mm-hmm. And being content with it, mm-hmm. and and um, that's I, just where I stand. I will say, however, uh, he, he is obviously he is an incredible public speaker, mm-hmm. really, really mm-hmm. gifted and talented at that. And I watch him sometimes just to enjoy his skill in public speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, also, Elevation Worship, mm-hmm. man, they are cranking out some good music. And sure. Some of it is really theologically informed and sound yeah so some people are saying yeah the music is way better than their preaching sure sure way more biblical content and they are turning out some really fine music i appreciate those people well i told i was telling joy the uh i think this was like two or three weeks ago we were driving into church and um come to the altar came on um 95.1 and i said you know i I love this song. Ninety-five-one has ruined it for me by overplaying it. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, and I do. I, you know, I really enjoy um, enjoy the, the the lyrics and the music in in there. And um, you know, my mother-in-law actually has several CDs from the Elevation Worship, and and you know, she'll play those around the house and in the car and things like that. And they do, they do have really good music coming out from there. And um, as Christians, I think we could do. Um, we could all use a lot less, you know, being picky about certain things and, and learning which things we need to be more picky and decisive of, yes. 
you know. Which leads me back to frame. Yeah. So in another place here, he's talking about creeds mm. and and what we should require of members when they want to become a member of our church. What amount of our creed do they need to subscribe to? Like if you've got the London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689, that's a lot of creed. If you've right. got the Westminster Confession, that's a lot of creed. Do you require strict subscription or mm. do you allow a lot of leeway? And uh, uh, frame rights, there have been many kinds of subscription through history. Um, in my view, he writes, only a very minimal subscription should be required of church members in general. The, the conditions for church membership should be no narrower than the scripture's conditions for belonging to the kingdom of God. Mm. Anyone who can make a credible profession of faith in Christ should be welcomed into the church. Man, I like that's that. And that good. rocked me because we required a fairly strict subscription back in the day as Reformed Baptists. Mm. Um, now I recognize, you know, in, in the book of Acts, when they baptized people immediately, and that right. word is used sometimes, and immediately they were baptized, they and their household, immediately. Like they didn't wait six months to make sure, are you really a Christian? Does this right. really pan out? Are they really sticking with it? Immediately they baptized them, which, you know, Reformed Baptists never would never do. Uh, the ones I'm familiar with anyway. Right. And um, first we would grill them doctrinally. Well, those people who got immediately baptized, if you had grilled them doctrinally, what would they have known? Right, right. Next to nothing. All they know is, well, I just believed on Jesus. Right. Yeah. So, all right. You, they can be baptized and they can be in the church. That's right. Yeah. That's And that's good. I mean, that's, that's really what we need is who, you know, uh, to me – you have a healthy church where you have attenders who don't understand and are still coming. Mm-hmm. You know, I can remember a time at CFC. This was a good six month period, I believe, and it could have even been longer. Greg might be able to uh, to confirm the the longevity of this, but at least for six months, we had a homosexual couple coming to the church. Both men would come and. Um, you know, they, they would sit in on Greg's sermons and, you know, wow. even the parts where, you know, and, and Greg, I think was speaking, um, I can't remember if it was in Mark or if he was out of Mark at that point, but there were topics that he was speaking on in sexuality. Hmm. And so I remember them sitting through sermons on that, but they, they loved the feel of the church. They loved the feel of the people who were there, yeah, you know, and that's what drew them back. Um, you know, now clearly at some point their theology would have had to change mm-hmm. and, and their lifestyle would have had to change if they were going to seek out membership and things like Baptism that. And- right. You know, but, but at the end of the day, these are people who came into the body of Christ and felt loved and accepted. Pretty nice. You know, and to me, that's, you know, that's, that's what you have. You have people coming and then, yeah, okay, in membership, it's like if you're going to accept Christ, you know, you accept Christ, you're going to be baptized now. You know, let's start working on the discipleship aspect, mm-hmm. you know, and that's when it gets messy. That's when you yeah, start cleaning up messes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's and that's when you start working through those things. But even that, you know, Greg and I have talked about, I, I could envision that, you know, that couple coming for a year or two before they're, you know, they ever truly wrestle and solve that that 
issue in their life. That so what said, happened to them? They eventually just faded away? There there were some issues. They owned a business together. Um, actually, it was right across the street from where I worked uh, at the liquor store. They owned a business together. There there were some other issues going on there with um, money embezzling and things like that. So, oh. Yeah. So there, there were some things going on. And so they ended up losing the business. I don't know if they ended up breaking up and, you know, moving. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I remember – you know, uh, going to the church picnic and seeing them there and recognizing them and being, Hey guys, how's it going? You know, and hanging out with them and they would come into the liquor store and talk to me and talk to me about the church. And, you know, so like this, this was a, to me, this was what life is. You know, you deal with people in the messes that they're in and you trust that God's going to handle it later. Sweet. So good on you, John frame. All right. Next book. Um, so the next one that I'm going to recommend is it's a compilation of John Piper's uh, stuff. And I, I love John Piper. Um, and Greg and I have talked about this on this podcast. Uh, he's gotten a little more preachy in his older age, but um, I, I, he's still a fantastic writer. A lot of his older stuff is really great. Um, but this one, 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. Um, this is one that I also used to read in my Bible classes. I used to have my students, I would read some kind of book, some kind of devotional and have my students journal about it. And this was one of the ones that I had. I think, I believe this was actually for my 11th graders. Um, and because of the content and theology and it was so deep and rich, but he goes through 50 different reasons why Christ had to come and die. And, you know, he talks about, um, for the glorification of the father, for the glorification of the son, um, you know, the eradication of sin, all these different reasons. And just so beautifully and wonderfully, uh, depicts the reasons why Christ came and, um, just one of my one of my favorite ones um, that he does. This is one that I've probably read through twice, I think, and it's really good one to read during that period of Lent, um, where you're leading up to Easter and just really you know pondering uh, what the season means and why Christ actually had to come and and pay that price for us. Um, so this is one that I recommend uh, mostly as a devotional book. This isn't a straight through reading uh, textbook. So each one is compiled reason one, reason two, and you read them individually. All right. So. Yeah, mention could be given to a lot of Piper books, huh? Yeah, and um, you know that's that's almost one of the reasons why I did this one is because, like I said, there's a compilation from a lot of different books that he's written. This was kind of pulled together from those books. You'll actually you'll read certain sections that were literally just pulled, copied, and paste right from one of his other books into this one. Um, and so there's just a lot of good stuff in there from that. Sweet. Your next one? All right. I'm going secular business book this time. Ooh. And uh, the, the title is Deep Change, written by a guy named Quinn. I don't even know his first name. Let me look it up here quick. What is his name? Mr. Quinn. What is your name? Robert E. Quinn. Deep Change. And... Uh, I, this might be a swing and a miss. I might be swinging at this book, and it will miss most of the interests of most of the hearers. <laughs> but um, maybe I can entice you. Um, this book is about the difference between deep change that many of us need, businesses need, churches need, 
uh, marriages need, households need, individuals need. We need deep change. Instead, we only feebly make an attempt at incremental change. Ah. We're afraid of you know the deep change. So right. we just, I'll just adjust this a little bit, but it's not. That's not what's needed, and it's right. not going to bring about the desired or the needed change. So um, he talks a lot about uh, how we get stuck in ruts and routines. Well, let me tell you why this meant so much to me. Sure, it, it's surprising. I've got three books right here. And all three of these are written by non-Christian guys for business, really. Okay. But all three of them really helped me as a Reformed Baptist pastor figure out what is wrong with us and how do we change it. Right. Oh, fascinating. So this book was amazingly helpful to me, this deep change book. I realized that as a church, we didn't just need incremental change. We needed deep change. Wow. Uh, the the biggest way I saw the biggest way that the need for deep change was visible was that the only people ever coming to Christ were our children, mm. and I'm deeply thankful that our children you know were one here and one there and a few more there right. were coming to Christ and being baptized, but we weren't reaching anybody mm. out there. Years went by yeah. where we couldn't say somebody from out there got saved. Right, something you know. I, began to realize something's really wrong with that. Sure. Our target seemed to be Christians who are maybe interested in becoming Reformed or have just become Reformed, or they're really, really Reformed, and they're looking for a church. That, yeah. that was our target audience, uh, if we tell the truth. Uh, I realized that needed deep change. We need a much bigger target audience than that. Yeah. And a whole lot of the target needs to be people who are not churched, people who are not yet in Christ. Uh, we're in Hartford County, Maryland. I read that on an average Sunday... 16% of the population are in a church of any kind. That's Only a, 16%. And that's yeah. all kinds of churches, some of which we would not recommend, right? Right. So the harvest is plentiful. Yeah. And we were doing, we weren't getting anywhere. We weren't doing, we were doing nothing. We needed deep change. Yeah. Of course, it brought us into a painful, painful process that I don't recommend to any pastor. <laughs> Go plant one instead. Right. Make that your deep change. Right. Um, but uh, he writes, for example, on page, I can't see the page number because I have the thing dog-eared down here, page 65. Uh, unfortunately, enlarging our perspective, you need a change of perspective to bring about deep change, is, is it's very difficult. For one thing, the degree to which past successes have etched a given map, script, paradigm, or myth into our brain affects how we process information. Um. There are extremely formidable barriers to tear down and replace. However, to gain insight into a new and challenging situation, our, our mental maps have to be reinvestigated. Mm. Interesting. Uh, later, he writes, change is hell. Yet not to change, to stay on the path of slow death. He says, that's your alternative. If you're just making incremental changes, you are on the path of slow death. Your marriage might be on the path of slow death. Your business might be on the path of slow death. You've gotten out of sync with the, the clientele, um, yeah. and you're on the path to slow death. But change is hell, but not to change, to stay on the path of slow death is also hell. The difference is that the hell of deep change is the hero's journey. I Fascinating. Like that. That's good. The That's journey good. puts us on a path of exhilaration, growth, and progress. Mm. He even calls deep change a spiritual process. What he's saying is things have to change inside of you. 
yeah. deep within. So I realized things have to change in me as a Christian man, as a pastor, mm. and things need to change in our church as a Reformed Baptist church. Mm. And this book was very instrumental in bringing about a deep change That's in our great. Church. That's great, book, yeah. From a secular book. I should yeah. write it. Hey, uh, our church changed. Right, right. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I'm so glad you didn't um, you didn't bring up Dave Ramsey, which is uh, always a scary thought in the Christian community. <laughs> oh, when, you, when you said business. Oh, you said okay. this is a business book. <laughs> I'm not even familiar with Ramsey. Really? I've heard the name, but I don't know anything about oh, him. He's, uh, he's What's like, the deal? He, he's a big Christian financial guru out there that everybody, you know, lives, breathes, and dies by him in the Christian community in terms of how to save money. And he basically tells you how to, yeah, how to use your money. And, you know, I, I I would always tell Greg, you know, I have an appreciation for someone like Dave Ramsey. I have an appreciation for someone like James Dobson who have ideas on how to raise children and how to Mm -hmm. do things like that. What I don't have an appreciation for is when they start trying to formulize these things and say it's going to work for everyone. And this is the Christian way. Exactly. Exactly. I object to that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. A little more, a little more quotation from Quinn's Deep Change. He says, uh, when a system faces the challenge to make a deep change, individuals will usually create an alternative scenario. In other words, let's not stay where we are, but let's not do the deep change either. Let's find this little thing. Mm. It is usually the scenario of the painless fix. So Mm. there is the... There is the painless fix when yep. you're on the path to slow death. Sure, sure. Your marriage is on the path to slow death. Your business is on the path to right. slow death. There's a painless fix, but and it's incremental, so it's not going to be you know the hell right. of deep change. But what you need is right. You need the deep change. Yeah. Um, deep change throughout a system means sacrifice and suffering for everyone. It also means engaging in real conflict. It is not very pleasant. And man, can I ever testify for that? Try to change a Reformed Baptist church. <laughs> oh, wow. One of those... Actually, don't. Yeah, don't. 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 Like you said, just go out and start a new church place. Yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. Very much so. I, I find it interesting, and maybe we can we can bring this up as a topic um, sometime. You know, when is it appropriate to dig your heels in and try to make change in the church? And when is it appropriate to leave? Well, that would be a good topic. Good topic to, to talk about, you know, and, and bo- I think, you know, talking about it from bro- both the perspective of, you know, the pastor um, and then from the perspective of, you know, church member. Mm-hmm. And so, how do I discern if, if this thing doesn't change, do right. I need to leave or right. is it something I'm supposed to live with? Yeah. Yeah, I think that I think that would be a good topic. But that that was really fascinating. So that was uh, deep change by what was the author's name? Quinn. Quinn. Very cool. All right. So Next book. my my second to last, um, and honestly, I didn't um, I didn't uh, necessarily plan this as again any type of statement on um, it being lined up in my favorite. But the um, the Chronicles of Narnia series. By C.S. Lewis. Uh, I got a lot of Lewis on here. Uh, big fan of C.S. Lewis. I think you must like C.S. Lewis. I do. Um, so Chronicles of Narnia, again, you have, um, I believe it's seven books. A uh, little bit shorter than uh, 
than Harry Potter series. And for those of you who know the uh, Harry Potter series, basically uh, one of uh, J.K. Rowling's books would fit into um, C.S. Lewis's books, or, or hmm. all of C.S. Lewis's seven books in would the Narnias would fit into one of hers. So, um, but I just I really enjoy the symbolism of his books in that series. Um, the, the, the things that he writes about and the things that he does Lion, the witch in the wardrobe has one of, uh, you know, the most fantastic parallels of Christ's, uh, death and resurrection in it. Um, absolutely brilliant making Aslan, uh, lion Christ-like figure. Uh, so one of my favorite, uh, sections written by Lewis is, in the silver chair, chapter two. This is, um, <coughs> excuse me, just after Jill and Eustace uh, lose each other, and Jill comes upon the lion sitting at the stream and says, Are you thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promises, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? she asked. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Hmm. I just, I love the encounters with God that C.S. Lewis brings these people to. Hmm. You know, that he is, first of all, he's the unchanging God. And second, he's the uncompromising God. That he will not compromise who he is. He will not compromise the things that he says or does. This is who he is. And he is good in all of that. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, again, has that great scene where... Um, the children are just experiencing Narnia for the first time and they've encountered the beavers and they're asking the beavers about this monstrous lion. And one of the children says, is he good or is he safe? Is he safe? safe?" And they said, he's a lion. Of course he's not safe. What are you talking (laughs) about? Haven't you just listened to me describing him? But then they add, but he's good. Hmm. And I love that because it is just that is who we serve. Our God is not a safe He's God. He's not safe. He's going to invade your life. That's right. Things That's are going right. To change. There might be blood and guts. Yeah, I mean, he's he's the God who called a sixteen, you know, maybe even as young as fourteen year old David to go and face Goliath. Hmm. You know, a, a seasoned veteran fighter. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not, not safe. safe. You know, he's he's the God who called David to go out and, and take on the lion and take on the bear, even younger than that. He's the God who called, not, not you know, called in the terms we think of, but called Daniel out of his 
home in Israel to a foreign land of Babylon. And by called, you know, it was a forced ransacking that the Babylonians did, pulling him away from his home, forcefully killing off his family, you know, but but calls him into that land and rises him up to the levels and positions that he's in. He's a God who takes Joseph from the safety of his home and has him thrown in a pit by his own brothers and betrayed and lied to and taken far away and then betrayed again by, you know, the the house of Potiphar. And, you know, this isn't a safe God, but he is a good God. But he's good. And, And we see his goodness all throughout scripture. And, um, I just, I love the way that Lewis portrays that in the Narnia series that, um, he, he is not safe. He's going to take all these children who come into this land on a wild roller coaster ride. And it's not going to be, uh, pleasant in some cases, it's going to be difficult, but it's going to be good and it's going to be good for them. So my sister is not a Christian. Mm-hmm. And many years ago, she was not a Christian then either. She was married to a guy named Richard. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were both readers. And they read the Chronicles of Narnia and thought they were wonderful, had a great time about them. Uh-huh. And then I told him, you know, C.S. Lewis is a Christian. They said, no, the C.S. Lewis? He's a Christian? No, they couldn't believe that. And I told him, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia, that's like full of Christian truth. They had no idea. Yeah, yeah. And the fascinating thing is... Um, you, you can read Tolkien and you can make the argument and you can battle back and forth. And the only evidence you have of the influence of Christianity is Tolkien's personal life. He intentionally wrote, set out to write a series, write a source of books that was devoid of symbolism within, within Christianity or any religion. Um, but when you read Lewis and you study his life, he did the exact opposite. Yes, he did. He wove he, it in everywhere, yes. didn't he? And and he did it so intentionally, and it's so uh, it's so great um, how he did that. And you read the first of uh, the books that he wrote, which would be um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Prince Caspian, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and um, The Silver Chair were the four initial books that he wrote. And then he added The Last Battle as a bookend, and he wrote two prequels, which were um, The Magician's Nephew and um, The uh, Horse and His Boy. And so you have these seven books. And it's interesting because when you look at even The Magician's Nephew and The Horse and His Boy, and then you go to The Last Battle, there's a lot of symbolism woven in even more. And you can find so much more woven into those things. Um, but I just, I, I do, I love that interaction that he has. And, uh, you know, if, if I were to be honest, um, which I'm going to be right now, are these on the same level as, let's say, Harry Potter? No, they're not. Mm-hmm. These, are, these are very much children's stories stories, and um i think as adults we we can appreciate them you said your your um, sister and brother-in-law at the time had had read them and and enjoyed them and so yeah i think as adults we can appreciate what's going on in these stories and we can enjoy them but but i think they are they are children's stories um you know but i i also don't think there's anything wrong with that um you know and so if you're you know if you you would ask me in terms of like a series that really holds me and and really captures my imagination and really takes me someplace yeah i'll I'll put harry potter above there totally honest Mm. 
Christian dude saying, I think Harry Potter is better than the Chronicles of Narnia. <laughs> However, I still do enjoy the Chronicles of Narnia for what they are. And we need to also understand and appreciate that the Chronicles of Narnia was written, you know, what, 50 years before Harry Potter? And there's something to be said for, you know, age and experience and, you know, having time, you know, kind of come in there and, and play on people's interests and, and things like that. Talking about age and experience and time, man, I'm sitting here thinking, all right, when did we read those to our kids? So my oldest son, Nathaniel, was 40. Mm-hmm. We were probably reading this to them when they were five, to him when he was five. So that's 35 years ago yeah. we were reading the Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah. When did he write them? 1950s uh, I, or earlier? It might have actually been earlier because I think in World War II when he was held up in the countryside, one of his inspirations for uh, writing them huh. was being um, having a group of children sent to his house. Mm-hmm. And so I believe that was the beginnings of the writings of those books. So World War II era. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah, classics. Yes. People ought to read them. Agreed. Agreed. Steve, I have last time for one. one more? Yes. Well, guess who I'm going back to? You have 10 guesses, and the first nine don't count. That's right. John Frame. <laughs> back to John Frame again. <clears throat> Going to end on a the- theology book. Nice. He has a little series of three books called A Theology of Lordship. Oh, and wow. This is the doctrine of the knowledge of God. Like, how do we know God? How do we come oh. to know God? Uh, Etc. The doctrine of the knowledge of God. Um, I love what he writes on page 155. It's about a, I don't know, 300, 400 page book. Um, he says, the, the better we are able to make ethical decisions, the more equipped we will be to make theological decisions. The two are a piece with one another. In other words, if you want to make good theological decisions, you have to know how to treat people. You have to have uh, ethical uh, posture in your in yourself like love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, kindness. Yeah. So he says, for example, um, many doctrinal misunderstandings in the church are doubtless due to this spiritual ethical immaturity. We need to pay more attention to this fact when we get into theological disputes. Sometimes we throw arguments back and forth over and over again, desperately trying to convince one another. But often there is in one of the disputers or both the kind of spiritual immaturity that prevents clear perception. We all know how it works in practice, lacking sufficient love for one another. Mm. Isn't that interesting? Lacking sufficient love for one another. That's an ethical problem. We seek to interpret the other person's views in the worst possible sense. We forget the tremendous importance of love. Uh, And he lists some passages there and how they talk about love. Lacking sufficient humility, too, we overestimate the extent of our own knowledge. So, you know, we make a caricature out of the other guy's knowledge. We overestimate the extent of our own knowledge. Yeah. And in such a case, with one or more immature debaters, it may be best not to seek immediate agreement to our controversy. Sometimes we need to back off a bit for a while. We need to go off and spend some time, months or years perhaps, in constructive work for the Lord, fighting the Christian warfare, and then we can come back later to the doctrinal question and address it from a more mature vantage point. Do you see how theological problems may sometimes, in effect, have practical solutions? Hmm. Learn to love people better so that you give the proper meaning to their words. You don't cast them in the worst light. So you realize the flaws in your own argument. You're willing to admit them. Humility, 
uh, great stuff. Yes. Again, from this you know theological giant with a massive brain, right? Yes. It's yes. so cool that he writes such things. Nobody else in theology is writing such things. Who, who else writes stuff like that in a book on the doctrine of the knowledge of God? I know. I know. John Frame does. A little more about that. Much later in the book, oddly, this topic kind of comes up again. He says, The practice of taking an opponent's view in the worst possible sense, without first seeking to find a way of interpreting him so that his view is more plausible or even correct, says this is a problem. Generally, this practice arises out of sheer hostility, blinding the theologian to more loving and more intellectually cogent possibilities. So often we get straw man arguments. You put up a straw man that you can knock down. Yep. And uh, we fight an opponent that doesn't actually even hold the straw man that we've built, doesn't hold that position. Yes. Uh, this is just good stuff. We are not to criticize others, he writes, without careful attempts to ascertain the truth. Mm. What are they really saying? What is their position actually? How'd they get there? What do they believe about that? So cool. Theological yes. humility and patience are needed. Yes. So one other thing from a little later in the book, I'm on page 327 now. And he says, often a theologian will correctly identify a weakness in the view of another, but will play that weakness for far more than it is really worth. Thus, minor differences are elevated to major differences, and theological disputes become church divisions. How contrary to the teaching of Scripture. Uh, he says in Scripture, some doctrinal differences are treated very mildly in the New Testament, both parties being urged to live together in love without any reference to church discipline. Other issues are much more serious because they compromise the heart of the gospel. It is theologically and spiritually important to be able to recognize that difference and to behave appropriately. Mm. Is this an important issue that we fight over? Right. No. Is this an important issue that we part company over and get mad at each other? No. So good. Such good stuff. Yep. So we must learn, he says, we must learn to do theology in love, a love that edifies and promotes unity, not division. Theology ought to seek and promote reconciliation among brethren, even among denominations and theological traditions, as much as that is possible. Man, I love the guy's heart. I know. It's oh. It's so good because you have you have a theological giant like John Frame who holds very tightly to his personal convictions on things but has so much humility, so much grace and so much patience and wisdom and wisdom to say these are my convictions. I'm not going to oppose them. I'm not going to press them on anyone else. You know, um, I remember the, you know, the first time we were talking with him and had him on and, you know, Greg was just talking about his love of football and, you know, uh, uh, John Frame was talking about how he enjoyed football and Greg was asking about many games that he's seen and he just very, just nonchalantly and humbly said, yeah, I don't watch too many of them just because they play on Sunday. But moved right on. Like, you know, there wasn't like, there wasn't this, oh, you watch games on a Sunday. You know, it was, this is my conviction. This is my conscience. And so this is what I do. And and just kind of moved on from there. Wasn't ready to fight over it. Yeah. Make a yeah. big issue out of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And oh, it was just such an enjoyable experience. And I'm hoping, hoping to repeat that experience with him uh, coming up soon. So that'd be great. 
So my last one, huh? Um, can, can I just uh, very quickly, I just want to give a shout out and a nod to some of the people that we've had on this podcast before who have written fiction books. We've had Eric Guzman on before who wrote The Seed. Uh, we've had um, uh, – yeah, sorry. Uh, Andy Collins on. Just did an interview with her uh, on Cities of Protection. I did that one with Jason Loveless uh, not too long ago. Uh, actually, it was the beginning of the summer, so I guess it was kind of long ago. Um, had uh, – Several others, Zach Bartles, who is also in Gut Chuck Press, and uh, have not had Tuck, Ted Cluck on yet. Would like to get him on at some point, but they have done fantastic job writing um, both fiction and nonfiction alike. And you know, just a shout out to all those people who have um, you know smaller platforms and smaller bases, and have you know actually put together a well constructed piece of literature for people to read and then how many more uh, books that we in interviews we've had on this podcast nonfiction wise um, but you know I just wanted to do a quick shout out before um, I read this last one uh, and just you know say thank you to all of you people who have done that and who have you know just brought uh, better literature into the world um, and brought you know pieces that uh, both Christians and non-Christians can enjoy. Um, and I think that's important too, is, you know, um, reading a, a solid piece of Christian fiction or non-fiction, I think it's good. I think it can be refreshing and uplifting, but I think also equally a, a solid piece that can be appreciated by unbelievers as well is, is something to aspire to because, um, you know, at the end of the day, the only thing that separates us is as believers, we know Christ has died and saved us. But we also know and understand that life is not, you know, the rainbow and, you know, there isn't a pot of gold at the end of it that, you know, Christ calls us to live through hard things. Uh, the Bible tells us that the sun ri- rises and sets on the righteous and the unrighteous, that we will all experience pain and joy and all of life's emotions. And so to me, to write a good book that can relate to our humanity um, is 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 a good thing to do, and so thank you to you uh, authors out there who we've had on this podcast before. Awesome. Um, so I'm I'm going to separate one book from the pack. I could do a whole bunch, um, and maybe in the future I will. Francis Schaefer. So Yay. many we could talk about uh-huh. with Francis Schaefer, but I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna say the Church at the End of the 20th Century. Oh, great book. Um, absolutely fantastic. And when you look at that book was written late sixties, early seventies. I read it in the early seventies. The things that he writes in that book and predicts Mm -hmm. and you read it today and you see those predictions. He was a prophet. Yeah. There is just no getting around, uh, those things. And one of the things that he talks about that I absolutely love Kind of sticking on the theme of what we were talking about with Frame is the idea that we do not side with the right people. That as Christians, there was a point where, you know, all of the idea of the pro life stuff was at a head where we really actually could have made even more of an impact and we wouldn't have been backpedaling. Um, in trying to make sure that the rights of unborn children were preserved and they had rights. And we had an opportunity as Protestants to work with the Catholic Church on this. 
to be co-belligerents. The That's right, co-belligerents. Not allies, but co-belligerents. Yes, but we stuck our nose up in the air and we mm-hmm. said, no, you don't believe the same things mm-hmm. we do. And we ended up shooting ourselves in the foot because we, we lost we lost people who felt the same way we did because they weren't quote unquote Christians. They weren't they weren't the brothers and sisters in Christ we have come to know and accept. Even though and I'll I'll make this argument to the day I die that I believe that there are brothers and sisters in the Catholic Church. Sure. There's one that lives right down the street from me. Yeah. She's and, a sister if I ever knew a sister. Yep. And and we need to, you know, we need to start being careful and we need to start saying, you know what? There are issues that I can align with certain people on, even though I can't align with them on everything. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we need to not just not just within the church, but even outside the church. Start looking at the things that, hey, you know what? Yeah, I don't agree with you on everything, but but I can hang with you on this topic. On this issue. And and let's start trying to find people that we can hang with issues on. Mm-hmm. You know, let's start try start trying to find commonalities. And I think in that we're gonna have a better chance at leading people to Christ. Mm-hmm. You know, where we say, Hey, yeah, I, I don't compromise on the gospel, but you know, what What are some things that we can get along with? Even if it's, you know, something as silly and simple as football, you know? And so I just, but I love that book because I love the things that he talks about. Like you said that, um, co-belligerence. Um, he also, um, you know, talks about how um, we have allowed, uh, you know, this is going into a political realm and I, I don't want to get too political here, but a lot of the the liberal issues that have come up has been because we have allowed them to as Christians and we have not, again, we have not sided with the right people. We've not sided at the right times on the right issues with people. And that includes, um, that includes political people being politically liberal. If there were certain issues that we could get behind and we could say, yeah, you know what? I, I think, I think it is important that we, we preserve the environment. So let's, I'm a conservative. You're a liberal. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about what we can do in order to make sure we preserve the environment. And from a conservative Christian perspective, God has charged me with doing that. Well, from a Christian perspective, but you know, God has charged me with taking care of the planet he's given Mm me. So why wouldn't I want to, you know, side with someone who views that as important and say, yeah, you know what, it's it's not a good thing that oil wells are, are, are spilling in the Gulf of Mexico. So what can we do to shore those up and make sure that that doesn't happen again? Hmm. You know, what can we do to, to make sure that, you know. Um, when I when I walk down the street, I'm not seeing Big Mac cans and you know paper bags floating all over the place. Um, you know, another thing I like about that book, what's that? Is uh, toward the end, it might be a, a latter chapter, or it might be one of the appendices, if there are any. I don't remember; mm-hmm. it's been a long time. But he's got a thing called Freedom and Form. Ah, uh, yes. Form. Do you remember that? I do remember that. And he talks about when you have a church, what are the freedoms and what are the forms? And he yes. points out that there are actually very few forms in the New Testament. Yes. Like there ought to be elders, pastors, there ought to be preachers, there ought to be communion. I forget what he lists, but it's a short list. And then he says, yeah. all the rest is freedom. Yeah. That's really refreshing. Yes. Yes. Just to know that. And, and it's the same way with, with us as people, too. It's the same way with us as people, individuals. You know, what are, what are the forms in our lives? You know, and when you look at, when you look at the Bible, you know, there are very few things that are universal forms Mm -hmm. for us. 
you know, and, uh, but then when you look at, you know, the freedoms that we have, there's all sorts of freedoms yes. to experience and enjoy. Yes. Amen. So, Francis Schaefer was a great guy. He was. Yeah. And I, I actually, I'm going to look forward to this segment we're going to do on our weekly book reviews because I, I envision having more, uh, more books. I remember being a senior in high school and, uh, we took a fine arts class and we had to read how should we then live. Mm. Um, and then I remember writing Great a 25 book. page paper on it. So, wow. 25. Yep. Debbie and I are, have been around long enough that we actually met the Schaefer's on more than a few occasions. Did you? We did. We went to seminars, we went to events and, uh, we have like Edith wrote a book called tapestry. It was about their lives mm. and how God wove it all together. A massive big book. And, uh, we, we've still got her copy of that where she signed it in the front. And she had like birds flying in the air and Alps because you know they're yeah, over there at the Swiss, yep. and then Edith Schaefer. Uh, oh, that's so we, cool! I got his signature in a book or two. It's kind of cool. It's nice that we met him, and he wore his knickers and had his long yep. hair. Yep. And I, I mean, I go back and I listen to um, some of the things that he says because he's been filmed so many times and audioed so many times. I, he's just got a really cool sounding voice too. Yeah, he does, doesn't he? Yeah, very just nice and. Man, too bad they're not around anymore. Could try to have them on the podcast. I think he and John Frame would have gotten along, at least on the like the evangelical yes. unity idea, because some of the divisions in um, in the Presbyterian churches that trouble Frame, he names some, were the same ones that troubled uh, Schaefer and made him decide, you know what, I think I'm going to go to Europe. Yeah. I'm going to get away from all this. Yes. Yes. And it's funny too, because it's not like there were, uh, you know, there weren't issues over there, but it was just a whole different, whole different set that, uh, you know, that he found a niche in, in helping people deal with and handle. Yep. Pretty cool. All right. Well, we are, uh, this was part two of our, our, uh, top 10 review of books. We're looking forward to adding a new segment coming in the future of, um, weekly book review. And so, you know, not, not nearly as, long and drawn out as this was, although this was a blast. Um, but, you know, look forward to, you know, like a three to five minute mini review on a, on, on a book or two. Sounds so. like fun. All right. We're going to go ahead and sign off now. Steve, we just rocked the Casbah. Rocked it. These go to 11.